Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. We're in a three-part series about the wonders of a woman. And it's in preparation to, uh, we're going to ordain our first woman elder in August. And as I said, this is the second of a three-part series. As I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, most churches would consider heresy what we're doing. But I want you to know that I personally have spent hundreds of hours studying this theme. And I'm continuing to find truth that reveals that women are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Women are not second-class citizens in any way. And there is ample apostolic evidence, ample, and most importantly, ample biblical evidence that God raises women into places of leadership. And it's only those who aren't willing to get beyond their own biases that are hung up on what we find as more tradition than spiritual truth. So let me just review just quickly a couple of scriptures from uh, the last message. Uh, the, this first uh, scripture is from 1 Timothy 2, and it says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now, there are some men who love to say that to their wives. Let a woman learn in, in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Women, shut up. There would be some that would interpret it that way. Is that the heart of God? We talked about in this passage, those two words, man and woman, can and and probably should be translated husband and wife. It's used multiple times in the Greek where they translate it husband and wife, but here they use man and woman. If If you translate it husband and wife, and it very well can be out of the Greek and could be, It changes the flow of this. In other words, Paul is saying that he wants uh, uh, marriages that are in order. He wants husband and wives that walk in divine order. And it's interesting, we mentioned that uh, that word authority, it's the only place in the New Testament it's used right here. And it's a very graphic picture. And the word authority here means simply a person who takes their hands and either themselves or someone else and strangles them to death. And who wants to be a part of that kind of authority? And so it it changes the picture of that. Paul is looking for healthy marriages that are in order. He's looking for a church. The church is being prepared as an orderly bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. In uh, 1 Timothy 3, it says this, If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. If a man desires the office of the eldership or the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. So we say that's open only to men. Well, it's interesting, in the Greek, that word man there can be translated anyone. If anyone desires the office of a bishop or the office of an elder, those words are used interchangeably. Overseer, bishop, elder are used interchangeably in the scripture. 
And so if anyone desires the office of a bishop, the office of the eldership, he desires or they desire a good thing. See, it's very important that we build on a biblical foundation. Oftentimes we think we don't want to get caught in the minutia of the word, but you know what? The minutia of the word becomes miraculous whenever we understand in a greater, fuller way what God is trying to say. We could never build the doctrine of women in leadership on one scripture. You can't build any good biblical doctrine on one scripture. You must take the whole of the scripture, put it together, find the heart of God, and let the truth pervade your mind and spirit. So we we talked about those last time. So what I want to do today is, I want to talk to you first about uh, the, the fact that Jesus is our example of recognizing and releasing women to their destiny. Okay? So is Jesus a good example? Is he a template that we can follow? You could say a rousing amen to that. What he lived, we can live. What he did, we should do. When I go to Burundi in a a couple of weeks, in in whatever it is, 10 days, I'm expecting miraculous things. I'm expecting God to do miracles there. I'm expecting to see people change and transform. Why? Because Jesus changed and transformed lives. He healed people. He he opened blind eyes. The, The deaf heard. People spoke who never spoke before. People were raised from the dead. What he did, he expects you and I to do. What he did, he gave us the authority to do. That's the awesome thing. That's something the church doesn't lay hold of. What he did, he wants us to do. What he did, he gives us the authority for. See, that's a good authority. That's exousia. Not this word that we see in this passage. But it's a good authority. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I give it to you. Go and do likewise. Go and do what I did. He said, greater works is the church going to do than I did. I mean, if we could do one-tenth of what he has done, it's an awesome thing. But he said, you're going to do greater works than what I did. And so Jesus, in leading us, I want you to look at, I want to look at three women that Jesus honored, that he dignified, and that he spoke into them in a way that has eternal consequences. He entrusted them with eternal truth that radically changed the world. Women. Now keep in mind, we mentioned in the last message, women in that culture had no value. They had no rights. They were just simply for the Jew. Now this is the Jewish men. We're not talking about the heathen nations. The Jewish men owned their wives. They couldn't be witnesses. They couldn't own anything. They couldn't read the scripture. They couldn't do any of those things. The the Jewish man could, for no reason at all, could divorce himself from his wife. They had no rights at all. And Jesus infuriated the Pharisees whenever he treated them with dignity and released them to their destiny. So the first one we want to look look at is Martha. And this is a story, you know the story, it's in John chapter 11, and it's the story of Lazarus, and we know that from the background of the story that Jesus was good friends with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He was, he was, they were friends of his, they were in a deep relationship. When he was in Cana, he stayed at their house. 
And so we come to this chapter in John chapter 11, and Jesus and the disciples are away, and they get word that Lazarus is sick. And the disciples expect Jesus to jump up and to run, run to Cana and see what's going on. And Jesus didn't do anything. He stayed in that place and uh, ended up Lazarus died. And so he goes then to Mary and Martha's house. And we pick up the story in verse 11. Or let me just mention verse 3 because this is really important. In verse 3 of that chapter, it says this. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Speaking of Lazarus. Later on in the passage, in verse 5, he said, Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. In other words, he was in, he was in a depth of relationship with them. He loved them and cared for them. And Jesus gets word that Lazarus is dead. And so he then, after these four days, shows up at the house And he has this dialogue with Martha. And uh, if you go over to uh, so when Jesus came, he came there to meet with Martha. Martha makes a statement. She said, Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Jesus said, he'll rise again. She said, I know that he's going to rise again in that day. Now, I want you to see something. Jesus made this statement early in the passage. He said to his disciples, he said, this death, this is not, uh, or he said, Lazarus is sleeping, but they misinterpreted, but he he was actually finally had to come say, Lazarus is dead. And then he made a statement, he said, this death is for the glory of God. That's an important statement because I believe there's a deeper meaning that we sometimes miss. When he said that this death is for the glory of God, he wasn't referring just to Lazarus' death. And in fact, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. But you know what? Lazarus physically died again. And so when he said that this death is for the glory of God, he was referring to what he was about to reveal as biblical truth to Mary, or to Martha. And so he said this to Martha, a verse that's very familiar to us. He said to Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Though a man die, yet shall he live. He that lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now think about that for a moment. That that is a foundational stone that our faith is based upon. Jesus had been unveiling that in various places with the disciples and so forth. But this is the clearest statement he makes of it in the scripture. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Though a man die, yet shall he live. He that lives and believes in me shall never die. Our faith, beloved, is based upon the resurrection of Jesus and the truth of that. You and I's hope of eternal life is based upon that. It's one of the most important scriptures in the Bible for us. 
And who did he give it to? Martha. Why didn't he give that to Peter? Why didn't he give it to John? Because he was entrusting the message to Martha. Because he wanted to honor her, and he wanted her to be able to tell the mess, that part of the message. <clears throat> it's interesting, as we think about women in ministry, earlier in the scripture, over in Luke chapter 8, it says that Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to him. The term sitting at his feet is a term used in that culture for one who sits at the feet of a rabbi. Uh, Paul used that in the book of Acts. It said he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the, uh, the teacher. He was his rabbi and taught him. That was unheard of in that culture. Mary sat at Jesus' feet as one that he discipled and was a rabbi too. A teacher, that was a common experience used to show the formal mentoring relationship between a rabbi and his disciple. This revelation of of, uh, the verses 24 and 25 that we're talking about was not given to the 12 apostles. These treasured words were given to Mary and to Martha. Note their dialogue as Jesus shared this truth with Martha. He said, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who who has come into the world. Whose confession is that very much like? Peter's. When the Lord said, Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? And they, they respond and they say, well, Peter, who do you say that I am? Mary responds and says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. <clears throat> and so Jesus entrusted to Martha this truth containing the resurrection. The second woman I want to look at is in John chapter 4. <clears throat> and it's a woman at the well. And again, it's a story that we're very familiar with. <clears throat> But I think sometimes we get so familiar with it that we miss some of the details and miss the importance of it. So Jesus is traveling one day, and we know that culturally, when they were traveling, when when Jews were traveling, and they had to get from point A to point B, and Samaria was in the middle, they didn't go through Samaria, they went around Samaria because of the, the conflict and the hatred that existed between them. On that day, Jesus, they were traveling, and Jesus said, I have to go through Samaria. You know why he had to go through Samaria? Because he had an appointment with a woman. And so we know the story. He met this woman at the well. Now, we need to understand that the woman he was talking about, he went to the well. This woman came to the well. It was noon. It wasn't 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. when they normally come. The women come and draw water and take it back to their homes and those things. This woman came at noon. Do you know Why? Why would she come in the heat of the day? She came in the heat of the day because she wanted to be alone, because she was an outcast. She had five husbands. She was outcast socially. She was rejected socially. And so she was in that place. And yet Jesus had to meet with her because she had a destiny he was about to release into her life. And so Jesus comes to the well. His disciples go into town to buy some food. And uh, this woman comes. Jesus said, draw me a drink of water. 
And she said, how is it that you, a Jew, asked me, a Samaritan, to give you a drink? Because they just didn't do that. And Jesus said, if you knew who I am, you'd be glad that I asked you to give me a drink. And he leads us through this whole conversation. And the whole conversation, though this woman is a woman of loose morals, a a woman rejected by society, a woman looked down upon and an outcast, he treated her with a dignity that was becoming of her destiny. And he was about to release something into her that was of eternal value and would have eternal effect. And so it's interesting that in verse 24 of that passage, and in fact, Ron mentioned this this morning when we went to that one song. He said to her, he said that God is seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Here's a woman with loose morals who was outcast, who was looked down upon by society of no value at all. And Jesus was giving her, if you will, the truth of the past way of worship of God. And it's based on those two principles. Those who worship him, the Father, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Those two things, those two keys, they direct our worship and our response to God. Those who would worship God must worship him first in spirit. So it is our spirit connecting with God that enables us to worship him. Secondly, the the guiding light for that worship and the guiding light for all of our worship has to be this. They will worship him in spirit, first our spirit to God's spirit, and secondly, in truth. What's the definition of that truth? Or let me say it this way. Who is the definition of that truth? Yes. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the the Father but by me. And so the truth of the unfolding knowledge of who the Lord Jesus is, he's the Messiah, he's the King of kings, he's the Lord of lords, he came to to redeem us, to uh, make atonement for us. As we we find that truth and that revelation of relationship with the Father, then it opens up for us, led by the Spirit of God in our lives, it opens up a, a pathway for us to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth, because Jesus is the truth. And so it's based upon his nature and who he is and what he has done. And here's a woman, a loose woman of five husbands that nobody, nobody would even talk to. And Jesus reveals this to her. And he also reveals another great truth to her. She said, we know that the Messiah is coming in her dialogue with him. Jesus said to her, basically, I'm the Messiah. Now, I wonder how she responded to that. Because the Jews and the Samaritans for hundreds of years had been, had been looking for and awaiting the coming of the Messiah. And he said, guess what? I'm the Messiah. To this woman. He reveals the pathway to, to worship and interaction with God. And then he reveals this truth to her. I'm the Messiah. Now, just like he revealed himself to you and touched your life, he revealed himself to you for a reason. First, to draw you into a relationship with him, but then also that he might use your mouth to proclaim the wonders of the good news. Paul said, I'm not afraid of the good news. 
For it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And he wants to use your life to testify and to use your transformation to declare the wonders of who he is. And never, ever underestimate the value of your voice. You may never stand on a pulpit. You may never go to Burundi, Africa. You may just go to Letonia, Ohio. But never underestimate the value of what you have to share out of the transformation of your life. And so, the woman at the well, what happened then? What's the result? The woman at the well was transformed. She went back into town... And those who wouldn't talk to her, she forced them to talk to her. She went back in there, jumping with joy and declaring that she had seen the Messiah. And I'm sure when they first heard those words, they probably wanted to stone her. She said, I've seen the Messiah. He told me everything about myself. And he did it with dignity and grace. Now, here's the crux of the truth. We know that this was a, a real transformation. You know why? Because the people of Samaria, from the one whom they rejected, this woman who had the audacity to come and say, I've seen the Messiah, I've met the Messiah, she had the audacity to say that. There was something in what she said and and the way she was transformed that changed their life, and they said, we want to see him too. If you have found him, and it appears like you have, then we want to see him too. We want to meet him too. And it says that they went out and met with the Lord Jesus. They talked him into staying for a number of days. He stayed in Samaria, and and he brought about a revival, all because of this woman that Jesus elevated and said, I have a leadership responsibility for you. I'm going to entrust you with this truth. I want my bride, my children, my sons and daughters to be able to worship me in spirit and in truth. And I'm revealing to you that I'm the Messiah. Now go and tell someone about that. And she did that. And God brought revival to the Samaritans. All through this woman. Awful quiet in here. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. And later on, they said, after they had seen the Lord, they said, now we believe, not just because you told us, now we believe believe because we've seen him and we've received the same revelation that you received. The third woman we want to look at is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was one of the women who were, what's the best way to say it? There were a number of women who were very supportive of the Lord Jesus, and actually, really, they really took care of him in the sense of of caring for his needs, providing finances for him to be able to, to do what he did. Um... Mary Magdalene has gotten a little bit of a bad rap. There are those that have taught taught that she was a prostitute. Scriptures don't say that. You won't find that in the scripture. 
But it does say that Mary Magdalene was touched by the Lord, that she had seven demons and that the Lord healed her. He touched and, and set her free from that. And her life was magnificently transformed. In Luke 8, verse 2, it says, Certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of uh, Chuzza, Herod uh, Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance, or from, from their wealth, or from their means. They took care of Jesus, provided food for him, provided places for him to sleep, and they, they traveled with him and took care of him. Now again, is it any wonder that the Pharisees were infuriated at how Jesus interacted with women? A Jewish woman who was married couldn't even talk to a male out in public. And yet Jesus, in the magnificence of who he is, drew these women to himself. Not as a predator, but one who would protect them. And, and out of that, we have these stories. And so Mary Magdalene, as we follow her story through Scripture, let's fast forward now to, to where Jesus is arrested, and he is about to go and to die on the cross. <clears throat> and it's interesting, when all that takes place, the arrest in the garden... And Jesus goes and goes, goes on trial, and they try him before various governmental officials and all those things. Where were the disciples at? Scattered. Nowhere to be found. Three years, Jesus poured himself into these disciples. Three years, he envisioned them and gave them vision for the future. Three years, he talked about what they were going to do after he was resurrected from the dead. And in the confusion of that moment when all that took place, Jesus was arrested, he's beaten and flogged, he's taken in to to hang on the cross, the disciples are nowhere around. But guess who's very near? Guess who's right there following this process and, and there, I can't imagine the emotional upheaval and all those things. Mary Magdalene. If you looked in uh, Matthew 27, verse uh, 56, it says that Mary was lingering at the foot of the cross. Jesus had gone through his scourging, all of that, and so he was, he was beaten beyond reason, it says in Isaiah 53. If you understand anything about scourging, oftentimes it led to death because the, the person's back looked like a piece of raw hamburger. It was, it was excruciatingly painful, and it had to be excruciating just simply to look at. And yet, Mary Magdalene was there. She witnessed when Joseph, after Jesus died on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea, who himself went through a, a transformation. And, and for us as men, he's one of the few men in this part of Jesus' journey that shines like a light. Not as much as the women did, though. You see, it wasn't just Mary of Magdalene that was there at the cross. There was the other Mary and a number of other women who were gathered there, but the disciples were all scattered. Men, we need to pick up our responsibilities and walk in the dignity of our calling. And so she, she witnessed Joseph of Mary of Matthias taking him down from the cross, wrapping his body and taking him to the tomb. She followed and was there at the tomb as they 
They laid his body in the tomb and the other women were there and they closed the tomb up. In in, uh, Matthew 28, verse 1, it was the women who were there on the morning of the resurrection. Disciples weren't around. And so Jesus is raised from the dead. The miraculous resurrection takes place. The stone is rolled back. The truth is about to be revealed of the wonders of the gospel. And there's Peter and John there at the tomb. And Jesus said, okay, guys, this is what's happened. I'm resurrected. It's me. Now go and tell all the people. Did that happen? No. No, it didn't. Peter and John weren't anywhere around. At that point, they were going to come in just a little while. And what Jesus did with Mary was he entrusted her with the first declaration as a messenger of the gospel of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. Listen to what he says to Mary. Jesus said to her, Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and to your God. Is that a powerful part of the declaration of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Why didn't he give it to Peter and John? I can't answer that. I could, I could, I could surmise some things. But he chose Mary, a woman who was filled with demons, who was transformed by his touch, to commission her with that message and to say, go, tell the disciples, tell the brethren what has happened. It's interesting, it says in Luke, it says, go and tell the brethren and Peter. We don't have time to go into it, but we know Peter's story and his denial of the Lord. He said, Mary, go and tell the brethren and make sure, make sure you tell Peter. Peter is about to begin his own journey of restoration and healing in John chapter 21. And he said, go and tell the brothers. Go go and tell the disciples. And of course, after that, Mary goes and tells them. They run to the tomb then. Too little, too late. Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Tell them I'm alive. Tell them I'm resurrected. Tell them that things are well, and tell them to go to Galilee because I'm going to meet them there. The greater the importance of the message, the greater the importance of the messenger. That makes you very important, doesn't it? That makes you and I very important. Because there are people who walk in darkness that need to hear. There are people who walk in darkness that need to be touched by the miraculous touch of Jesus. There are people who need to be touched, whether it's a physical healing or an emotional healing or a spiritual healing. They need to be touched by him, and you may be the only one man or woman, woman or man, who can share with them out of your influence that you have with that person. 
<clears throat> I'm going to share one more thought here, and that'll be my opening remarks. We know as biblical Christians, we know that God gave gifts for us to be able to do what he called us to do. That's why we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the fullness of the Spirit, because we synchronize and work together in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And so God gave gifts, and we know that in 1 Corinthians it talks about the gifts of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit brings to us. Ron exercised some of those today when he was sharing words of knowledge. We know that the Father in Romans, uh, the Heavenly Father, gives gifts to men. And we also know that the Lord Jesus in Ephesians gave gifts to men. Okay, so there are gifts of the Holy Spirit, gifts the Father gives, gifts that Jesus gives. And so in Ephesians 4, it says that Jesus, before he ascended, he gave gifts to man. And he gave the fivefold ministry of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Those are gifts to the body of Christ to enable us to do what we do. There is an apostolic anointing upon this fellowship. Do you realize that? Uh, the, 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 the apostolic anointing is not a title that somebody takes. It's a calling that God gives. It, it, the, the word apostle means the one who is sent. Paul was an, an apostle to the nation because he was sent to build a foundation for the church. And so he gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and teachers. For the work of ministry, for the equipping of the saints the equipping of the saints first for the work so that they could be involved in the work of ministry. But this is what I want you to see. He gave men to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Is that what scripture says? No. It says he gave some. He didn't say he gave men. It says gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We have biblical evidence of women who were, were uh, moved in the apostolic company and moved apostolically. We have ample evidence that women were involved in those ministries. Why is it that we've come to this place in history, and there's a long uh, many years of history where women have been downtrodden, held back. A woman could be president of the United States, but she can't be an elder in the church. I want to just, if you are, if I've stirred your interest, I want to give you an article to read. I actually, I have two more pages of notes and we don't have time. But there's a, there's a, uh, a Dr. Robert Morey, uh, who wrote an article called Women Elders in the Early Church. Okay? And I think we... Do you have that, uh, William? Oh, we've not lost our signal. Okay. Well, anyway, it's women elders, in, uh, women elders in the Early Church. This is an excellent article. There's a huge amount of background. I wish I had time to go into the history of First uh, uh, Timothy chapter 5, where it's talking about the widows and, uh, and uh, how those women... Uh, let me just summarize that real quickly. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 there, verses uh, uh, 5 through 13, it talks about the women in the church who became widows and how the church cared for them. But what's interesting in Timothy there, 
there are, there are qualifications for some of those women that actually parallel the qualification of an elder, you know, in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And what happened historically, and we know this to be true in history, for 300-some years, the women in the church rose up and they began to minister to the women of the church. In other words, they were discipling the women, they were caring for the women in a way that only they could. Do you realize that it's not good for me as a pastor or Bruce as a pastor, one of our pastors, it's not good for us to counsel alone with a woman? I, I never counsel with a woman alone. There, I won't say never. There are a couple of exceptions I made that were spontaneous. Normal procedure is I counsel with my wife if there's a woman involved. There are times I counsel with women. When my wife wasn't available, Kathy was in the office. The door of my office was open, and I counseled those women. And when I needed to minister to them, to lay hands on them, to hold them if they were crying and weeping, you know what? I said, Kathy, come in here. Hold this woman. Pray for her. Why? Because women are vulnerable in those places. And they look at leaders like myself or other leaders and they think, man, this is a spiritual giant. They're attracted to us. And I'll tell you, that's a sad mindset, but it's true and it happens. And there are hundreds of pastors who have fallen into adultery because of that. And so these women in the church began to take care of the nurturing and pastoral needs and the discipling of the women in the church. They functioned as elders. They began to be recognized as elders in the church. And they did that for 300 years. And then we come to 320 AD, the Laodicean council. They gathered together and they basically said, no more. The women are no longer allowed to minister in leadership positions. It's, it's history. It's true. It's there. It's there in the, in the Bible. The other thing they did at that point, they did away with the love feast. What we did today, as we gathered today for communion, they did away with the love feast, which really was more of a, an actual, you know, kind of a dinner and so forth, where they celebrated the wonders of the Lord. They did away with that and said, no more love feast. They said, these responsibilities are for men and for men alone. And you knew who was hurt by it? The church. The church lost a facet of the care that God intended for the church out of his heart and biblically because of some, some men who made a decision out of this canon. And, and this, you, can spend, you can spend 40 hours studying the references and so forth. So I've got a couple of these. You can get on. If you just simply type in women... Elders in the early church, you put in uh, Robert Morey's name, it'll bring this up. So I've got a couple I'll give away for you if somebody wants to read one. We have a great example in this church. We have women in this church who have functioned exactly the way he talks about, exactly the way the Bible talks about. Shirley Streifler has mentored and, and uh, discipled women ever since I've known her. Lynn Hamilton has mentored and discipled women for years. Marta Aker has mentored and discipled women for years. Monica uh, Striefler has mentored and discipled women for years. And we dare say women be silent? They need to mentor those women 
so that we have strong families, so we have strong marriages. And that's what the Lord is talking about. We're not, we're not ordaining Kate as an elder as a political situation or a political stance. We're recognizing seeing something in the next generation of the church that, that these women I've mentioned have gone before and prepared a way for. And Kate is coming into function in the gifts that God has given her to add to the synergy of our leadership team. And I want you to know, we are wonderfully excited about that. And, I, and part of our goal is we want you to be, we know you trust the leadership. We know you trust us. But we want you to be biblically literate in a way you can stand up and say, hey, women should be in leadership positions because the Bible teaches that. Women are not second-class citizens because the Bible teaches that they are near to the heart of God. They're, they're not without gifts because the Bible teaches that God has gifted them the same way he's gifted men. And history is, is littered with women with an anointing that I wish I had even an ounce of because of who God is and the way he made women. Amen. I encourage you to say a rousing amen to that. Amen. All right, let's stand together. If I could have the, the ministry team... Come, and maybe you want to respond to to, uh, some of Ron's prophetic words. Ron, I know, would be available to to pray with you if you need to. Just want to uh, just encourage you again, we have our lunch today. You're all welcome to come, Uh, especially our new time folks, our first time folks. It would be great to be able to eat lunch with you and get to fellowship with you a bit. Amen? Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word, O God. Your word declares that your word is a lamp under our feet, a light to our path, O Lord. So, Lord, we pray that you would continue to illuminate, Lord, your truth to us, especially in this area. And we're thankful, Lord, we're thankful, Lord Jesus, that you raised up and you honored women, you dignified them, Lord. You, you raised them, you released them to ministry, Lord, and we want to follow your example in that, Lord Jesus. So thank you, Lord. And Lord, I just, I just, Lord, as one of the leaders here, I just stand against the divisive spirit that would seek to come against our, our fellowship. I stand against the spirit of division that would seek to come, Lord, and I bind those things in your name, Lord Jesus. We release your grace, Lord. We release your revelation, Lord. We release, Lord Jesus, an understanding that we might walk in the truth as you reveal it to us. We thank you for that. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.